brought to you by Team Corker. This week, the first week in all of our recordings, I have had the sweet pleasure and privilege, really, of passing the mic over to Emil. Hey, Emil. (laughs) Hey. How does it feel to get the baton passed? I didn't realize I was the first, so it feels great. I'm a bit nervous, I'm not going to lie. There's no one better than you. You have a beautiful way of both asking questions and telling stories. And Mm -hmm. I think it is so important that we all recognize the conversations we're meant to lead and the conversations that we're meant to be silent on. And so in honor of International Trans Day of Visibility, there is no space for me to host this and there is no one better than you. Can you tell us a little bit about why we chose to have your best friend, dear friend, colleague and ally James as the guest for today? So James Kelly is someone who I've known for years and I feel like he's a great place for us to start because I think this conversation is so multifaceted. He's done something that I think is really unique because he has combined his lived experience as a trans person in the world with his professional activism and advocacy. And so he's been about this. He's been walking this talk for his whole career and really for his whole life. And I also think that there's a lot of space for white folks to really advocate for this work. And so as a white man, he's someone who recognizes his privilege, but also has had the experience of being socialized in a different gender growing up as well. So I think really has the ability to really provide that empathy, but also the insights. I love it. Well, you took the mic for the conversation and this is my last moment on air. And so I have to ask you, what is making your heart beat faster before I pass it over? (laughs) Oh, I didn't know I was gonna get the question. You know, I'm excited about this conversation, but I'm also like really nervous. And I would say that what's making my heart beat faster right now is thinking about that word about visibility and how it can be so freeing and so important to increase representation, but also very scary and not safe for a lot of people. And so I think that I would just frame that to know that it is safer for some of us to be visible and more visibility hopefully increases safety, but there is no expectation for that. So my heart beats for all of my my trans siblings out there. And with that, it will be over to you. I have to treat Emil like an athlete all the time. It's like we warm up before <laughs> we send Emil onto the court. Amazing. Ready, boss? So mm-hmm. this is, I might have done this with you, Emil. We're going to play this or that. James answers first. Emil answers second. Are you ready? I didn't. Okay. I didn't volunteer for a warm up. <laughs> And this is why the intro gets included. Consent. (laughs) James, will you play a warm-up game with me? I would love to. (laughs) Are you ready, team? Dog or cat? Mm -hmm. Dog. Dog. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. YouTube. Phone call or text? Phone call. Phone call. Yeah. Pop or indie? Ooh, crossover. Indie pop, yeah. Indie pop. (laughs) Sneakers or sandals? 
Sneakers. Kicks. Car or truck? Truck. Truck, yeah. yeah. Money or free time? Contribution. Free time. <laughs> Anytime, that's mine. That doesn't include <laughs> childcare. <laughs> Priceless. Coffee or tea? Both. Coffee. Beautiful. Except my mom's chai. There's nothing better. It is the greatest honor to pass the mic over to you, Emil. You are here to host a conversation with James, who is a friend who I've had the pleasure of stalking online. And it feels only appropriate that this is a conversation that comes from you, from Team Porker. Take it away. Thanks, Steph. James, I just want to show you so much of my love and gratitude for doing this chat with me. You know, when I think about the International Day of Trans Visibility and uplifting voices and celebrating trans voices and people, you're the first person that comes to mind when I think about even my own journey of my identity. And I feel like you've not just contributed to my life, but to so many folks, and also just continue to be an amazing advocate and activist in this space. So I just want to say thank you for that. Thanks, Tide. I feel the same about you. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, when I think about this and what we could talk about it, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think has hit the media over the last few years, films like Disclosure. And there's the people that we know about that have done a lot of really great work. And, you know, that list that, you know, the top six trans people that are out there doing the work, like Janet Mock, Laverne Cox, really amazing folks. But there's a lot of people that we don't hear about as often that have really changed the course of and created amazing and impactful social justice movements like Marsha P. Johnson and so many others. So I would love for us to kind of think about when we think about visibility and celebration, who would we celebrate and who do you think has actually made us more visible? And what is it like to be visible? Because sometimes that's both amazing and scary as hell. So yeah. yeah, what are some of your thoughts on that friend? I was just having this conversation with someone before this meeting and I was talking about how often social justice movements are done in a way that's palatable for the rest of society. And so when I think about something like gay marriage, I think about the folks that kind of introduced this in a way that the rest of society could get behind. So we picked attractive, white, mm -hmm. blonde people who are already favorable in media to some degree. And this created a platform where I think other members of society could be like, yeah, well, you know, that's cool. They're not threatening. They're not outspoken. They're attractive. They kind of fit those matrix. And in some ways, that's been a really useful in moving movements forward. What that's kind of done, though, is we were talking before about Dean Spade and his idea of trickle up social justice, meaning where when we're kind of solving the problems for the most marginalized people, the people that are most vulnerable in society, it inevitably ends up supporting those at the top. Mm. The system that I just talked about goes in the opposite direction. And sometimes those closer to the bottom that are more marginalized don't get that same exposure, which I think is exactly what you're talking about. So when I'm thinking about people of color, when I'm thinking about indigenous people, black folks, trans women in particular that are often at the front lines of many of our social justice movements, we're not hearing or seeing those voices because those people are disruptors and disruptors are often the people that create the change, but they're not the people that we hold up and we celebrate. In celebrate. Yeah. yeah. Like Marsha P. Johnson, when you think about gay rights as a whole, right? 
Stonewall. And it's only recently that we really started talking about her role and the ultimate price that she paid, which was with her life. And we forget. And I, there's actually a concept around this, which is around minimization. So when you really want people to kind of get on board around, you know, equity or diversity movements, you minimize someone's identity. So they're very similar to you so that you can get people on board with their really early onset of their journey. So like love is love that campaign. It really was about minimizing difference to kind of showcase that we're the same so that Mm -hmm. you can then accept us. And so it makes sense that they would choose folks that would be like the person, you know, next door that you could then see, oh, that person looks like my son, that person looks like my brother versus folks that are probably more represented in the community, but not represented in media or storytelling, which is like true diversity and nuance and unique stories. Those are the outliers. Those are folks that we don't talk about and that are in the margins that are really part of the movement and probably make up so much of the people that are fighting for change. Yeah, 100%. And I would actually challenge, you know, when you're you're talking about forget, I would actually say that it's intentional. I would say that it's a disappearing. We're Mm. disappearing the history of people that are less palatable to the rest of society. So I think it's actually a very intentional move that's happening. But I I 100% agree with what you're saying, 100%. And it's those people that we're ignoring in the struggle, the people that are putting themselves on the front line. And also, you know, when we're talking about trans visibility, what we're often talking about is passability. So Mm -hmm. folks that pass, folks that can be perceived as the gender that they weren't assigned at birth, people that are beautiful, people that have privilege to pass, because there's lots of things that contribute to passability, as being this thing that is more important. If you're passable, then you have higher worth. And, Mm. you know, you and I know that's just not true, right? There is no such thing as the need to pass. There's no such thing as the right way to be trans. And I think often that is part of the whitewashing that ends up happening as well when we're looking at who are the leaders, who are the voices in our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're saying and what I'm understanding, just for folks that may not fully understand what passing is, is, is if you kind of fall within the binary like if you really are leaning into madness or womanness as far as your identity your presentation your expression then it seems that people tend to welcome you a bit more if you think of a general broader society as a member of it because you're conforming as opposed to someone who is non-binary queer or uh, not necessarily presenting in the way that people expect them to yeah yeah or have access to yeah Exactly. Fair. I think about your history and the way that you kind of got into this work, because not only are you a trans person, but you also are someone who's been involved and advocating and being an activist for folks that haven't had that voice, including a lot of young people. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I have a pretty extensive history, both as an advocate and Mm -hmm. as an activist in lots of different intersecting communities, actually. So the basis of my work, I spent well over a decade working with really marginalized folks in Vancouver, downtown east side, a lot of those folks experiencing homelessness, as well as multiple other intersecting barriers. And then from there, I moved into an executive director position running a program called Peak House for Youth 
across the province, but it's located in Vancouver, trying to deal with substance issues. So it's a live-in treatment center. And it's, it's pretty remarkable because it's also a live-in treatment center, but it's all gender. And we have a lot of queer and trans kids that come to us. And there's some pretty trackable reasons for that. Part of that is the history of the program. The other part of it is while I was in that role, I transitioned in my late Mm -hmm. 30s, which is a pretty unique experience to have. It's a super privileged experience to have that I was able to do that successfully, but it was definitely terrifying. And I took a lot of risks in doing so. Mm. Part of that kind of leads to the conversation because it was that visibility that I think really helped to further shape the work that people before me had done in order to create a space where people felt like it was a safer option to send their queer and trans kids. The opposite side of that is I was also terrified that me being out because I was very out in many different realms. I've done a lot of activism work where I'm out. I was also worried that it might create a barrier to access where perhaps caregivers or parents wouldn't want to send their kids to a program run by a trans person. So there's Mm. like lots of different layers to this. I just think it's so important when we have the privilege, when we have the safety to be as visible as we can. And that's with respect that not everyone has that. But for those of us that do, it's really, really important because it creates access points for other folks. From there, in addition to being at peak and having that job, I'm also, I have a private counseling practice where I'm doing therapy and almost all of my clients at this point are either trans or non-binary folks. Mm-hmm. Um, or their parents or caregivers <laughs> or partners, loved ones of trans or non-binary folks. So it's this really beautiful opportunity to get to witness and support people in their journey. I love that. The reason why I chuckled there was, you know, you and I talked about this the other day of like, you called it a utopia. You know, what is mm-hmm. this utopian world that I'm living in that, you know, parents are reaching out to me and loved ones are reaching out to me to see how they could support the people that they love better. And you and I both know what it's like to experience lack of support and, and many people do. And just this like feeling of like love to be like, oh gosh, I really, this kid, this person, this young person is, has a level of support that we potentially didn't. And it feels so good. Yeah, it's such a beautiful thing. And even in terms of access points, you know, there's lots of problems, but let's focus on the way some things have been really improved. So I was one of the founding board members of the Catherine White Holman Wellness Clinic. I think it's the only one in Canada that's a volunteer run health clinic for trans and gender diverse folks. And at Mm -hmm. that time, I was doing tons of advocacy work, as you're aware, around surgical accessibility because wait lists were huge. I was doing lots of media work. The clinic was just prolific in the work that they're doing. They're still doing. They're a fabulous organization. And folks were really stuck in terms of being able to access gender-affirming care on all kinds of levels. Now, people are able to get that kind of care so much quicker. And while we have so many issues that extend beyond, you know, we're in a metropolitan area, so that makes things look a lot different. But rural organizations are now reaching back to um, healthcare systems here in BC, like TransCare BC, for instance, Mm -hmm. in order to get support for rural clients. So I just think things are just becoming more and more open. And I'm just really excited about what's going to happen in the next five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when TransCare BC launched their program to even help folks navigate surgery, navigate name changing. 
often in my practice and my consulting, I talk about the systems that we live in and how they were built not for everyone and uh, very much for the folks that created them. So if yeah. you are a cisgendered, so someone who was born and identifies with the same gender that you're born with, that cisgendered, heterosexual white man, upper middle class, the system works great for you. It was built by people that have your lived experience. I'm not dogging that, right? I'm just saying that that is reality. It's just a matter of if you don't have that experience, the system is really hard to navigate. If I married my partner, I would be able to change my name in an instant. But mm. if I'm not married to my partner, but I do want to change my name and I have to navigate so many different layers, whether it's like municipal for my driver's license, provincial for my health care card and federal for my birth certificate. And I am yeah. a person that has a lot of privilege and agency and support. And it's been years, half of a decade that yeah. I've been sitting with that paperwork, trying to navigate this web that was not built for me. And I'm this like poor fly trapped in it sometimes I feel. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting yeah. to think about how important systems and processes and supports like TransCare BC and how those have emerged now and folks are able to really take advantage of that and leverage those supports and how important that people know that that is something that we need to continue to support as young folks and adults alike navigate how to really self-determine their identity and be their authentic selves, like live their authentic lives. And that's all yeah. I think, I think, in my opinion, we're asking for. 100%. I mean, in my private practice, often I'm the first trans person that my clients have ever had a conversation with you know, and just like hmm. how incredibly powerful that is. And so on one hand, that feels a bit demoralizing and sad that they don't have more access points, but on the other, they found me and they're finding other people and they're finding other resources. So I think, you know, like having these kinds of conversations, it's just so important. And the allyship that we're experiencing with other organizations reaching back going like, hey, tell me about this or tell me about what you're doing. Tell me about what's available. Tell me about how I can help. It's just really expanding that wraparound network of care that I think is so important for all trans people, but in particular where my heart lives as well is with trans young people needing help and support. Mm -hmm. I love that you talked about the fact that you might be the first trans person that your clients have spoken to, because I think that's going to be one of those moments where people realize how important visibility is and how important representation is. I shared with you some of the folks that I love, some of the trans folks that I look up to as far as like artists and people doing really amazing work and Vivek Shraya, someone who comes to mind for me. And I went to one of her book readings and, and she also wrote this really amazing book called The Boy and the Bindi. And uh, I remember yeah. picking up a book and having her sign it for me in that moment because my partner had just told me that she was pregnant. I was just like going to be a parent. And I remember telling Vivek this and I was like, I'm going to read this to my child. And she wrote this beautiful thing in the book to me, which is like, you know, all the best in parenthood. And it was the first time that somebody had called me a parent and how much that resonated with me. And I read that book with Eleanor and, and she loves Bindi's, right? Where we're Indian as part of our cultural background. For her, it's a cultural background more than it is a racial background. And she will go to my grand, her grandmother, her nanny, my mom, and be like, I want a yellow Bindi, like the boy in the Bindi. And she just does not even think twice to think about the fact that she's referring to a boy wearing a Bindi, which in our culture isn't very common. Yeah, I love that story. 
I've heard this story before and every time I like, you know? And only like a, I think in my opinion, only a trans person writing that story would have it like resonate and land in such a way that would be that powerful. And, you know, this idea of that connection to the third eye and his connection to his mother is just such a beautiful thing. And it was told in such a way that was culturally connected to my culture, but also so connected to my own transness at the same time. Yeah, and it was that risk to be vulnerable and visible that creates this pathway for you to read that book, for then you to read it to Eleanor, for then Eleanor to have this experience of sameness in terms of family and all the intersecting pieces. Like, And it starts with, and I do wanna preface this by saying, not everybody should be out. I feel like people need to self-determine what's safe for them, what mm -hmm. their location is, what their privilege is. All of those pieces are really important. It's not safe. It's not the right choice for everyone. But when we can be and when we can be brave and take those risks, it has such a beautiful weaving across so many people that we just like how Eleanor will then translate her reading of that book and take that forward to a conversation with one of her friends. We just don't know like the depth to which that reaches, which is one of the reasons why I just love that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I also love is that you don't need to love a person who's trans to really, it's like what you just said about the trickle up effect. If everyone reads that story and Vivek Shraya, the boy in the bindi, I'm going to give Vivek a plug here. <laughs> Please right. pick it up. Really great. And also makes really great music and art and writes beautifully. Mm -hmm. It is a story that would resonate with any child, I hope, and would open up conversation around what it is to be gender creative, regardless of what the outcome of that person's identity will be. And it's so important. I do want to talk a little bit more about your practice. How do folks find out yeah. more about your practice? Because I think it's important that people know that there's a resource and a support like you out there. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. People can find me online. JamesAlexanderKelly.com is my website. They can go on there, uh, have a read, send me a message. I like to keep my practice really focused on making sure that it's the right match with the right people. And so right now I'm really focusing on primarily trans, and queer folks. I'm also providing service to frontline workers, so especially those working in the opioid overdose crisis right now, because that's part of my background, so providing service there. And then caregivers and lovers, friends, and support networks of trans people as well. Amazing. And there's a way that we end these talks, and I really want to honor that, which is, you know, what is making your heart beat faster right now? And I do want to challenge you, James, because you're so, so focused always on supporting others. Hmm. I know you're probably going to start there. <laughs> I want you to end. I want you to end with you. I want you to okay. end with you, my friend. Okay. Okay. I love a pop question. I would say so many things right now, to be honest. It's been a hard year. Like it's mm. been a really, it's, it's been a year. I've had a lot of personal change and a lot of personal growth in this year. So I'm kind of excited about what feels like the cresting towards whatever we're going to get back to or recreate, but I'm feeling great about uh, hopefully the pandemic easing out soon. So that's making me pretty excited. As you know, I'm a person who loves to travel. And so mm -hmm. the thought that this is coming at some point, maybe in a year, feels pretty exciting. And I just started this podcast right off the heels of doing a session. And so I'm going in reverse just to 
just to go in reverse. But I just came off the heels of a session with someone and it's just so enlivening how brave and vulnerable and honest people are. I was just talking to someone and they're a younger person and their parent wants to have a session with me so that they can ask all the questions that they don't want to impose on their child. And I was like, this is like, where are we? This is what, you know, this is part of what you're talking about. Where are we that we have these like people that are really showing up for the ones that they love and trying to figure out how to be the best ally. And that just like, it just makes me so excited. Uh, so I would say that. You know, I just love you. <laughs> <laughs> just love you too, friend. Uh, thank you for sharing your time with me. And oh my gosh, James, I cannot wait to give you the biggest hug. I miss that stubbly face of yours. It's ready for you, my friend. It is ready for you. I can't wait to. No mask. Uh, it's coming soon. Yeah, for sure. All right. Will you take care and give my little nephew, Brooklyn, a hug for me? All of his I seven will. pounds barkiness. Yep, the little dog, he will be happy to receive it. And uh, just so much gratitude. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Okay, bye.